Golly, it's good to hear you all singing. Um, The first seven words of this text from Ephesians, I bow my knees before the Father, makes it clear that we're dealing here with a prayer. This comes at the very end of the first half of the letter. It's a transition point into uh, what will come. But in it, the author lifts the congregation uh, to God. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to just happen to overhear someone praying or praying for you. I remember one time my dad, who was a judge, was dealing with a very, very difficult case. And I walked past his bedroom and heard something. It was an odd thing to hear. And I I looked in, and there was Dad kneeling by the bedside, praying fervently for clarity over this case. It taught me lots that I didn't know about my dad's faith. And it showed me just how important it is sometimes overhearing prayer. Let's turn now to this text from Ephesians. Hear the Word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of God's glory... God may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through God's Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, Now to God, who by the power of work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. A few miles from the little town of Cassett, Maine, there is a beautiful old New England meeting house dedicated to the worship of God about the time of the U.S. Constitution. Far now uh, from any center of population, it's generally closed, but at least once a year, uh, everyone from around there gathers and holds a service. They make a pilgrimage to worship at it. In her book, Meeting House Hill, about the influence of the colonial church in the life of the community, Ola Winslow describes the importance of worship and the exercise of faith. Sermons were light thrown on the mysteries a man could not even state for himself, much less unravel, though they were part of his daily consciousness. Once a week for two hours, his thoughts were lifted above the interminable chores of life and his destiny linked to something vaster than he could immediately know. His daily performance was tested against a great idea. And in the midst of manifold uncertainties, he was given a north star 
something to help fix the course of his life. He needed nothing so much. When I read that, I immediately think of the writer's great prayer for the Ephesians that we just read. Every word speaks of meaning, purpose, power, of identity, destiny, direction, of confidence, character, and community. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the power to comprehend the the breadth and length and height and depth that you may be filled to the fullness with God. All authentic faith engages us at the top of our minds, at the bottom of our hearts, and in the exercise of our wills. There was a, a word and a address from beyond us, a claim upon us, a command set before us. In all profound faith, there is revelation, worship, obedience. It has height, a theological perspective. It has depth and empowerment for life. It has extension, a a way of living in the world. Look more closely at this beautiful intercessory prayer and what it says about the four dimensions of faith. There is first of all the dimension of height. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth is named. Like the Bible itself, the author of Ephesians begins with God who is beyond us, who is prior to us, who moves in on us out of the mystery of God's freedom, who out of transcendent majesty and otherness reaches out to us from on high. Amy and I just got back from a couple weeks of vacation out at Glacier National Park and Grand Tetons and seeing those mountains, the the sense of the height and the grandeur and glory and transcendent majesty of God is before us. Calvin calls nature the theater of God's glory and truly it is. The writer of the letter begins as the Lord Prayer begins with God from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. God names us. We don't name God. God is free from us from any and every and all subtle ways that we would seek to control God or uh, assert our own priority. We often hear unctuous talk about putting God first or about keeping God somewhere or the other in the schools or in politics or Christmas or or whatever, as if we could keep God anywhere. The author is having none of this bringing God into the life of the Ephesians. No, in intercessory prayer, he is bringing the Ephesians before God. The Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. In seminary, I ran across a a book by J.B. Phillips that was popular a generation or two before I was a student called Your God is too small. And he writes that the challenge for people today is of finding a God who is big enough to embrace the world and close enough to fill their inner emptiness. The writer of Ephesians exposes us to a God who is certainly big enough for all of that. He shows us God's character that lays open God's grace, the urgency of God's intention. He wraps us in a circle of God's presence and power. The prayer then brings us to a second dimension of faith. 
That is death. God, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, not only is self-revealing to us, but claims us, and in Jesus Christ, visibly, actually, anchors our life in divine love. That God may grant you to be strengthened with might through God's Spirit in the depth of your soul. That being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, you may be filled with the fullness of God. Both inside and outside of the church today, there is an attitude toward faith that keeps a large number of people living pretty much on the surface of life. Don't want to go too deep. Keep it, keep it light. I think faith, their faith tends to be more or less one-dimensional. A faith of moral demands only or a, a faith focused primarily on feeding self-esteem or ensuring emotional equilibrium. Such faith may suffice for a while, but only in the shallow waters. When life one day is pushed out into the deep, say the deeps of joy, and because there's no corresponding depth of insight into the meaning of grace, we don't know the difference between God's blessing or sheer good luck. Or say life plunges us into the ocean of sorrow, when there is no deep and abiding sense of God's unfailing presence to sustain us, of God's everlasting arms to hold us together and hold us close enough through tragedy, what can we say or do? After we've cried out our heartbreak and anger, after we've shouted out our grief and fear, do we have anything left with which to meet the heavy hours and the heavy griefs and heavy tasks set before us? Or do we mutter desperately pious words about the will of God that does not even come close to the compassion and comfort God would and can and does throw around us in our time of need? There is nothing malicious in such thin, one-dimensional religion. It simply betrays life lacking in deep resources of power and confidence and serenity that are rooted and grounded in the love of God from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. One of the finest things I've ever read said about one person about another was written by John Morley about his friend William Gladstone, the, the Prime Minister of England. Gladstone, said Morley, was one of that high and favored household who lived from a great depth of being. Now if he'd said that about Gladstone, as a fellow Christian, it might have been more, it might have been impressive, but he was a staunch agnostic, uh, writing profoundly against the church in his time. However, closely watching his lifelong friend, Morley saw where the secret to Gladstone's moral power lay. Gladstone lived from a great depth of being rooted and grounded in steadfast love, strengthened with might by God's Spirit in the inner being. Any truly profound and dynamic faith will have a dimension of depth, a confidence of belonging to God, of being anchored in God's love, sustained by God's grace, upheld by God's power. Any truly profound and dynamic faith will have this sense of playing a part in God's eternal purpose, of being strengthened by might, by God's own self, own life in the depth of your soul. 
And this uh, dimension of depth will be fed in the worship of God, in the study of the faith, and in prayer. Beware, especially in our day, of any faith that downplays worship, thought, or prayer in favor of projects or programs that serve some ideological or political agenda. The demands of life are terrific enough already. And as the years go by, they often mount in intensity. Watch out for one-dimensional faith that merely piles on demands for more sacrifice, more toil, more religious activity, but which does not at the same time help to meet the demands of life from the deep resources of grace and worship and study and prayer. This church, as you well know, is deeply involved in the outreach ministries of compassion and service to the community and to the wider world. But these just didn't suddenly occur to someone out of the clear blue. No, they emerged out of a deep faith and reverence of thought and prayer of committed community and the congregation. No ministries of compassion and service, however needful or noble, will be able to last long apart from the wellspring of God's empowering grace. Faith's third and fourth dimension are the dimensions of length and breadth. Length marks the extension of faith forward into the future, the durability, the steadfastness, the staying power of faith. Breath refers the extension of faith outward into the life of the world. If the dimension of height reminds us of the source of life and identity, and the dimension of depth reminds us of the love and grace in which our lives are anchored, rooted, and grounded, the hidden with Christ in God, then the dimension of length reminds us of the extent in time of the life of faith, of its endurance and steadfastness. There's a key verse in the prophecy of Habakkuk that receives wide application in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews and in the writing of Paul. It's also had had enormous and fascinating influence in the history of Christian doctrine as a keynote of the thought of Luther and others. Often it's translated this way, the righteous shall live by their faith. But the word for faith in that verse means much more than the act of faith, much more than trust, much more than intellectual and emotional assent to the revelation of God. It might perhaps be better translated, as indeed is suggested in some Hebrew manuscripts of Habakkuk, this way, that the righteous shall live by their faithfulness, by the steadfastness of faith and trust. The picture here is of a man or a woman of quiet, self, unself-conscious graciousness, confidence, steadfastness, dependability, even serenity. Such people are like men and women you and I have perhaps known, possibly even in this congregation. I can think of certain ones who live or have lived among us and in other congregations I have served. Confident that there is in... in sovereign and invincible love above them, a, a firm power under them, a great and tender care about them, and an eternal destiny before them, they shine out as beacons of faithfulness, assurance, steadfastness in a dark and unsteady world. 
They seem able to maintain a wholesome distance from pettiness and gossip, jealousy, destructive criticism, ill will, vindictiveness, the bearing of grudges. Instead, they seem to live from a great depth of being, from great strength of character, from great steadfastness of conviction, and yet with such a spirit of openness and acceptance that they invite our trust, elicit our respect, and win our love. They are women and men of great personal strength and influence, yet they bear this strength with genuine humility, aware of such power as there might be is not in them, but through them. They see something in every other person worthy of their regard and respect. And they're therefore endlessly, foolishly, incredibly merciful. From generation to generation, such souls carry forth faith and give integrity and continuity to the church's best life. And they help define for us the communion of saints. Which is why our church's purpose statement on the back of the bulletin reads, Ordinary people testifying to the extraordinary light found in our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to highlight that. And this brings us naturally to that other dimension of faith. The extension of faith in the space to a breadth and wideness that reaches out and encompasses other people within the regard and influence and concern. No faith created from above, no faith nourished by deep springs of God's power at work in the world and within us, no faith marked by steadfastness and faithfulness can live only to itself in some narrow and self-serving, self-satisfied rut. For an individual or church to live like that would give the lie to everything else and would expose what could only be called a counterfeit faith. God, for whom every family on heaven and earth is named, means to gather all such families into the circle of divine and redeeming love. God does not name us only to throw us away. God's whole purpose in all of this is to redeem beloved children and the world from the bondage of evil, from the burden of guilt, from the dominion of death. If we think God is after anything else, then between God and us, there can be little but misunderstanding. Forgiveness, healing, reconciliation, redemption. This is what the gospel in its, all its fullness keeps on asserting and reinforcing from the beginning to the end. How anyone could get the idea from the Bible that the breadth and length and height and depth of life claimed and directed by God is a kind of a discouraging chore is beyond me. No doubt there were people in the Apostle Paul's day who insisted on turning the gospel into a millstone and hang it around their necks, and so is true in our own time. But Christian faith was never cut out to be anything of the sort. Jesus sets out the vision before us when he shares his call. God has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he calls us to carry on that ministry through the power of his Spirit today. The the Bible keeps saying from the beginning to the end 
that somebody else is over all of this, that God is present and powerful and purposeful in and through history. As biblical scholar Neil Plantinga writes, the great writing prophets of the Bible knew how many ways human life had gone wrong because they knew how many ways human life could go right. And they dreamed of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. People could work at peace and work having meaning and point. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. The Christian gospel tells us, he continues, that we are now fallen creatures in a fallen world. That all hell is broken loose, but also that in Christ all heaven has come to do battle. Christ has come to defeat worldly power, to move the world over into a new foundation, and to equip people, informed, devout, educated, pious, determined people, to follow him in righting what is wrong, in transforming what is corrupted, in doing things that make for peace. And that's what we're about here at Westminster. Week in and week out, we come to worship God who has created, called, and claimed us and sent us out to be Christ in the world. That's why we'll stand and sing in a little while. We give our minds to understand your ways, hands, eyes, voices to serve your great design. Heart with flame of your own love ablaze till your glory all our powers combine. In the meantime, God is getting ready for some greater future than any past we have known. And just so, the writer of Ephesians closes his prayer. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This Ephesian prayer is my own for us this day as we seek to live faithfully in every dimension of the faith and to serve this great God who has called us by name. Thanks be to God. Amen.